You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hey, uh, just a heads up. This episode contains topics of suicide and violence that may be disturbing to some. Please take care while listening. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal ideations, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. And thanks for listening. Take care of yourself, okay? You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. It was dinner time when Dr. Herbert Simmons received the call. The woman on the other end calmly asked him to come to her home on West 14th Street. A girl in the house had killed herself in the bathtub. The same woman had called the police a half hour before, asking for the coroner. In 1909, the town of East Orange, New Jersey didn't have a coroner, and the officer told her to call the doctor. Simmons arrived at the dilapidated house and double-checked the address. Although he doubted that anyone could possibly live there, he knocked and waited. A woman holding a candle and dressed in black answered. She led him through the darkened house, up the stairs, and to the bathroom. In the flickering candlelight, Simmons noted the odd position of the body in the tub. The girl's legs were folded underneath her, and her left hand still clutched a washcloth. Her torso slumped forward. Long strands of auburn hair floated in the water. He knelt and raised her head. Large, unseeing brown eyes stared outward from an emaciated face. Simmons turned his attention to the clothes stacked next to the tub. A suicide note lay on top. She had apparently taken her life to be reunited with her daughter. The doctor looked at the woman in black. He asked when the tragedy had occurred. 
The woman replied that she didn't really know, that she had just discovered the corpse minutes before she called him. Who is she, and who are you? Simmons asked. The woman tersely answered that he'd learned that soon enough. Confused and a bit alarmed, Simmons asked a barrage of questions. The woman's still resolve turned to nervousness. She claimed the last time she'd seen the girl was earlier that morning. Simmons got to his feet. The girl had been dead for at least a day. He immediately summoned the police. Detective William O'Neill questioned the woman in black. She gave her name as Virginia Oceana Wardlaw, a former co-owner of the Montgomery College in Christiansburg, Virginia. The girl in the tub was her niece, O.C. Sneed. Although O.C. had written a suicide note, Wardlaw couldn't explain why there was no pen or ink in the home. His questioning began to unravel the dark truth that Wardlaw and her sisters had kept for decades. When O.C.'s brother died as a child, her parents received $22,000 in insurance. In 1901, her father died. O.C.'s mother, Caroline, cashed in another policy and moved in with her sisters, Mary and Virginia. All three took to wearing black dresses, hats, and veils. Mary's son, John, died when his nightshirt accidentally caught fire while he slept. The sisters split the $18,000 insurance policy. O.C. married her cousin, Fletcher, and the two had a daughter named after Fletcher's mother, Mary. Unfortunately, the child died two days later. Fletcher disappeared, and the sisters claimed he'd killed himself. Fletcher's insurance policy named his mother and aunts as beneficiaries. But without a body, the insurance company refused to pay. They tried forcing O.C. to write a will, naming them as beneficiaries, They've also tried to bribe a doctor, the milkman, and a plumber to help them end O.C.'s life. All refused. The autopsy revealed O.C. had been nearly starved to death, overdosed with morphine, and placed in the tub to drown. O'Neill also discovered small bones in the oven, belonging to an infant. But the most shocking detail came when investigators learned that O.C.'s mother had masterminded it all. Sometimes, the monsters are the ones closest to us. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. William Beadle had good looks, expressive features, and a clear intelligence. Those who met him said he possessed an easygoing disposition, uncommonly good sense, and the manners of a true gentleman. Historians believe William might have been born to a man of means and his mistress sometime in 1730 in London. He spent time around the court, suggesting he had been well provided for. William and his sister grew up well-liked and honest by all accounts. For a short time, he met with a group of deists. Deism had become the religion of free thinkers in England. They believed God revealed himself through human reasoning instead of divine intervention as written in Christian Bibles. In 1755, William moved to Barbados, where he lived with the governor and his family for the next six years. When he returned to London, he established a merchant business. He sailed to New York to take advantage of the growing mercantile opportunities there. Eventually, he settled in Fairfield, Connecticut, where he met Lydia Lothrop. The two married on April 15th of 1770. The following year, they welcomed a son, Ansel. Their second child, Elizabeth, arrived in 1772. 
William's business easily provided a comfortable living for his growing family. After having amassed a considerable fortune, William moved his business and family to Wethersfield, Connecticut in 1773. Nestled along the Connecticut River in brick paver streets, colonial homes completed a picturesque landscape. The town, founded in the mid-1660s, was one of the oldest in the colony. William and Lydia became well-known, William for his wealth and integrity in his business, and Lydia for her sweet and kind nature. They welcomed little Lydia in 1774, and Mary in 1776. They seemed the perfect family, and doted on their children. William proudly told neighbors about his children's endeavors and accomplishments. More success followed, earning William more wealth than most other New England merchants. He and Lydia enjoyed the company of the town's most elite. Life in Wethersfield seemed as perfect as the scenery itself. William was happy. Everything had turned out just the way he had imagined in his youth. The times were changing, though. In 1776, anger toward the British swept across the colonies. Following the Boston Tea Party, Parliament had Boston Harbor blocked, which cut off supplies to the city and the revolutionaries. As you might imagine, merchants lost a lot of business. But a blockade proved to be just one misfortune for the Beetle family. In 1777, the value of continental paper currency began to plummet. At the time, it took $1.25 in continental currency to purchase a dollar worth of gold or silver coins. Congress stopped issuing the bills by 1779, and by 1781, it took $100 continental to buy $1 worth of gold or silver. Coupled with the blocked ports and rising inflation due to a lack of goods, shops preferred British pounds over the nearly worthless colonial currency. Congress had printed so many of the bills to pay for the war that the value continued to fall for five years. This greatly affected everyone in Wethersfield, including William Beadle. Most businesses stayed afloat by either charging more for goods and services or taking only the British pound. William did neither. It was illegal to not accept continental currency at face value. Obeying the law and sticking to his code of integrity would be William's downfall. It didn't take long for him to lose much of his fortune. The Beatles slid into middle-class status, and for William, who had been one of the town's wealthiest men, this wouldn't do. He wrote to a friend, lamenting that he could no longer adequately provide for his family— wasn't exactly true. Though no longer exceptionally wealthy, the family had plenty of food and could even keep the services of a maid. Still, William ended the letter asking if it were time for him to die. The Revolutionary War dragged on, further reducing his wealth. To William, things looked very bleak for him and his family. He'd once been wealthy and enjoyed the company of society's elite. Now he stared down poverty. Soon afterward, William began carrying an axe and a carving knife to bed. In William's mind, without his fortune and social standing, the town would surely mock and ridicule them. He reasoned that the lowest of wretches on the street would despise them if they fell into poverty— he worried that without his fortune, his family would fall victim to the vilest and most vicious people in all of Wethersfield. He thought of their friends and social circles. 
surely prominent men like Thaddeus Burr, Colonel John Chester, and Stephen Mitchell would no longer socialize with him. William imagined people talking about him behind his back and laughing at his family's misfortune. Though he continued to dress and act as a well-to-do gentleman, he reasoned there was only one thing to do. Become meaner than all of them. He'd been an affectionate and devoted husband and took great pleasure in indulging his children. His family had been one of his greatest joys. Yet, for a couple of years, William contemplated ending his life. By 1780, thoughts of suicide turned to homicide. Over the years, William had remained a deist. He firmly believed in the right to take his own life without consequences, even in the hereafter. And, in an extreme interpretation of the era's view of masculinity, he felt that he had the same privileges over the lives of his family members. Deists believed divine revelations came from logic and rejected the writings of Christianity as superstition. In an enlightened age, free thinkers like the deists chastised those who believed literally in Christ's resurrection. The religion remained more popular with the wealthy than with the lower classes. Men spent time debating certain philosophies and opinions regarding deism, though they kept relatively quiet outside their circles. The Puritans often took to violence against deists. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, and other founding fathers practiced deism, making the religion even more appealing to William Beadle. With his beliefs intact and his status and manhood at perceived risk, William wrestled with a solution. If he killed himself, his family would suffer. If he killed the children, his wife, being as attached to the children as she was, would suffer. William tried to resolve a way to spare his family. But in his mind, the world had conspired against him and his children. If he died, they would need to die too. He came to an answer that made perfect sense, or at least an answer he liked. His religious beliefs required only that he seek the solution from within, and whatever sense of morality came from his reasoning was the indisputable truth. He saw his children as an extension of himself, so killing them was his right. However, his wife presented a different problem at first. She wasn't his flesh and blood. However, she belonged to him by marriage, therefore she was his to do with as he wished. In 1772, he struggled with how and when to spare his family from poverty. That November, Lydia announced she wanted to visit relatives in Fairfield for a while. William breathed a sigh of relief. It was a sign that he wouldn't have to kill his wife. He drafted a will and a note, fully explaining what he planned to do to the children. When he finished, he set a date, November 18th. Lydia returned early, though. And on November 17th, Lydia told him of a terrible dream she'd had the night before. A man had injured himself beyond recovery, and William had written her a letter. Though spots of blood had covered the note, she could make out that he was concerned for her. William wrote another note to accompany his will. He felt terrible for his wife, but her fear left him unfazed. Her early return had been another sign. He'd have to kill her, too. He loved his wife. She had a good heart and wanted only to bring happiness to those around her. But he reasoned that a woman without a husband stood little chance of employment, much less the ability to support four children— Having married before, she was also less likely to find a suitable partner. After much internal debate, he felt at peace. 
he interpreted that sense of well-being as God's support for his plan. He jotted down one last entry. The hand of heaven is with us. Only one question remained. Should he kill his children first, or his wife? On November 18th, William sent the maid on an errand to a neighbor's house some distance away. He had written a letter and asked her to wait for a written reply, regardless of how long it would take. William made sure the answer would require some thought, preventing the maid from returning until after he carried out his plan. She wasn't family, and he had no right to harm or scare her. However, the maid returned much sooner than he expected. Now, William could have taken his wife's early return, her dreams, and the maid's return as a sign that he shouldn't kill them. None of that dissuaded him, though. It only delayed his action. Lydia continued to dream that terrible things were about to happen to the family. The nightmares frightened her so much that she told her friends when they gathered to catch up with each other. William remained convinced that Lydia's dreams were premonitions, and therefore a sign from the heavens. Clearly, God agreed with his plan. It never occurred to him that she had picked up on his paranoia that people were out to get him, or that his taking weapons to bed might have frightened her. On November 28th, Lydia told him she had dreamed that their children lay dead and that she was also killed. She recalled that she was free and happy after they were all dead. Uh, to some, the dream would have been very telling in a different way. But Lydia's dream excited him. He thought God was directing him to end his family's suffering. He had failed his wife and children. William vowed not to fail God. On December 6th, while his family slept, he rose and took the axe he kept with him. Quietly, he stood over his wife, axe poised. Then he turned and left the room. He entered the children's room next. One by one, he stood over them and watched them sleep, still gripping the axe and contemplating each of their deaths. This practice run pleased him. It was the final proof he needed. As he'd imagined swinging the axe, he'd remained confident that he was doing the right thing. He journaled, marveling at his restraint. The Christmas season was in full swing, and on December 10th, the Beatles hosted a party for friends and family. Prominent guest Stephen Mix Mitchell noted William's cheerful and upbeat mood. William doted on his family. After dinner and celebrations, guests began to leave around 9 p.m. He asked them to stay, but all declined, leaving the Beatle family to settle in for the night. The children were exhausted and didn't need coaxing to go to bed. Lydia was also tired, and after tucking her children in, she put out the candles and headed to bed for some much-needed rest. Sometime before dawn, William woke the maid and handed her a sealed note addressed to Dr. Joseph Farnsworth. Lydia was not well, he said. He needed the maid to dress quickly without waking the children, deliver the letter to the doctor, and bring him back to the house. The maid did as she had been told, though her employer's last words as she headed down the path confused her. Don't rush, he called after her. William watched her until she disappeared into the night. He wouldn't have long. The doctor lived close. As Dr. Farnsworth read the letter, the maid noted the horror on his face. She might have asked, though there's no record that he told her what the letter said. Instead, the doctor summoned Colonel John Chester and Stephen Mitchell. 
Still unsure of what had happened, the maid accompanied the men back to the Beatles' home. She entered first. When they reached the children's room and opened the door, she fainted. The scene was so dreadful that Mitchell ran outside to catch his breath. Farnsworth found Lydia in the couple's bedroom. William had taken the axe to her twice, then slit her throat. The doctor followed a trail of bloody footprints out of the room and down the hall. William was slumped forward in a chair, the bloody knife on the end table. He'd taken two pistols, raised them to each side of his head, and pulled the triggers. The bullets had ended his life. Regardless of their religion, the townsfolk hoped it had not ended his perceived suffering. The murders outraged everyone in town and across the state. As far as the residents in Wethersfield were concerned, William Beadle didn't deserve a burial. They strapped the knife to his chest and bound his body to a sled. Residents lined the street while a horse pulled the sled toward the Connecticut River. They spat on his corpse and cursed his soul. Once the sled reached its destination, men dumped his body into a shallow grave. As satisfied that they were done with the likes of William Beadle, they returned home and prepared to bury Lydia and the children. Lydia was 32 at the time of her death. The oldest Beatle child, Ansel, was 11. The youngest, Mary, was just six. On December 13th, the townsfolk carried the bodies to their final resting place. Attendees wept as mother and children were laid together. The marker covering their grave told their story their destruction at the hands of the husband and father they loved and trusted. After the funeral, the townsfolk hoped to put the tragedy behind them. Instead, they wrestled with William's actions. How could anyone kill their whole family? Heavily religious, the people there commonly thought of deeds as guided by either God or the devil. A William's act was unspeakable, even for Satan. Christian ministers took to the pulpit, warning congregations of the dangers of deism. But even the most devoted churchgoers were faced with something other than religion, the dark side of human nature. Workers at a dock on the Connecticut River complained about the smell of William's decaying body. A few men dragged the corpse to another location away from the docks. The next day, children came across the body, forcing the residents to deal with dumping it once more. This time, they hoped to be done with William Beadle. Congress eventually paid off its war debts, Treasury notes replaced the once-worthless continental currency. Had William waited another couple of years, he might have recovered financially. Instead of a desperate and misguided man, the townsfolk saw him as a monster who acted on his worst fears and impulses. People began to look at the narratives of such crimes, piecing together trails of clues leading up to the offense itself. William's heinous actions paved the way for the true crime and horror genres. No one had seen the murders coming. Until then, William seemed like a devoted husband, doting father, and kind man. His will and journals chilled them. For years, something worse than the devil had walked among them. William Beadle methodically, almost enthusiastically, planned the murders of his family. In his neighbors' minds, William had done what the devil could not. His actions whispered to them in the dark as they blew out the candles before bed. Some couldn't help but wonder who the people in their house really and truly 
were. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at price that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Today, you'll still find the Tuttle name in several places along the east side of the Quinnipiac River. There's Tuttle Road, Tuttle Place, and even Tuttle Elementary. The family had roots in the area dating back to the mid-1600s. William, his wife, and their children arrived in the New World along with his widowed mother, two brothers, and their families in 1635. The family were successful merchants in England, but were excited about greater trade opportunities in the American colonies. And they were not the only ones heading across the Atlantic. Many families left England to avoid religious persecution. The Tuttles were strongly Protestant in a time when England was not. History calls them Puritans. So when their minister, John Davenport, set sail for the New World, most of his congregation followed. Brothers John and Richard stayed in Boston while William settled in New Haven, Connecticut. He reestablished his business, setting up ventures along the New England coast and down into Delaware. In addition to his trade business, William was named a commissioner, arbitrator, and constable. The money wasn't an issue for the Tuttles, and William and his wife purchased a considerable amount of land in 1656. They lived in a mansion with their growing family of 11 children. From there, drama followed the Tuttle family like a loyal dog. By many accounts, at least one of the children was deemed insane. Another had been branded an adulteress. And two became murderers. William died in 1673 without leaving a proper will, throwing the family into chaos over their father's accumulated wealth. They fought constantly. On November 18th of 1676... Benjamin Tuttle visited his sister Sarah, who lived in Stamford. Sarah's husband left the house one night without eating dinner, setting off a quarrel between the siblings. Benjamin left in a rage, and Sarah instructed her daughter to shut the door behind him. Moments later, Benjamin burst back in, wielding an axe. He shouted that he intended to take Sarah to God. 
After striking her in the head, he pushed her body into the fireplace and continued striking her with the axe. Upon his arrest, he claimed he'd killed his sister because she might have killed him first if he hadn't. Benjamin's niece and nephew testified against him, and the court sentenced him to hang. Before his execution, Benjamin willed his entire estate to another sister, Elizabeth, who had her own issues. When it came out that one of her seven children had been fathered during one of her many affairs, Elizabeth's husband, Richard, filed for divorce. Though Richard had had his own affairs, one of his mistresses was fined for her part. When Elizabeth and Richard divorced, he married his mistress. Another sibling, Mercy Tuttle, took an axe to one of her sons in 1691 and blamed the devil. Her husband told the court his wife had not been acting right lately. And just days before his son's death, Mercy told him she'd have the children buried in the barn. Her comment had puzzled him. The children were healthy, after all. When he questioned why she thought the children would need to be buried, she replied that dreadful days were coming. Sam Jr. overheard the conversation and asked his mother if she would do such a thing. She responded that she certainly would as long as it didn't hurt him. Other neighbors also testified that Mercy was insane. The court found her not guilty due to insanity, and Mercy returned home to her husband and daughter. Psychologists remain curious about people they call family annihilators. Like William Beadle and the Tuttles, those who commit familiacide often seem to believe that killing their family, even pets, will spare them from humiliation or some other negative outcome. Experts believe there are three reasons people commit familiacide. Sometimes they suffer from a mental break or psychosis. Often they think God or the devil guided them. The second is financial distress. Nearly a third of familiacides are due to financial strain. The killers are otherwise upstanding members of society and are seen as respectable. The last is the feeling of being trapped in an intolerable situation. These cases typically involve divorce, affairs, or the fear that children will be taken from them. According to mental health professionals, men commit 95% of familiacides out of deep shame or fear of losing control over their family. From O.C. Sneed to the Beatles and Tuttles, a couple things are certain. Though familiacide has happened for centuries, studies regarding family annihilators are still new. And it's one of the most horrifying types of homicides. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro. The first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at gainbridge.io. Visit gainbridge.io/parityflex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.